Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Marcy Shore, an associate professor at Yale University. Professor Shore teaches European intellectual history. She's the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918-1968, and the translator of Michal Gorvinsky's Holocaust memoir, The Black Seasons. Today we'll talk with her about the book she's currently finishing, The Taste of Ashes. Welcome, Professor Shore. Thank you for having me. You write about Eastern Europe. What's special about Eastern Europe, and is it so very different from Western Europe? Well, that's a good question. There are many things that are special about Eastern Europe. Um, let me first. Well, let me first speak as an intellectual historian. Okay. Um, one of the interesting things about Eastern Europe is this very liminal space between the East and the West. So I wrote a book, for instance, about Polish intellectuals, these rather nutty futurist avant-garde poets who become Marxist. And one of the interesting things about them was that while they were Polish intellectuals and they were writing in Polish, they were also reading in French and German and Italian on one hand and in Russian on the other hand. Mm -hmm. So this combination of influences that was coming from the East and the West gave them a very different profile from either the Russian intellectuals or the French or the German intellectuals. Um, the other thing I would say is that as somebody who works mostly on the 20th century, the experiences of Nazism and Stalinism in Eastern Europe are deeply intertwined. Mm -hmm. um, so while in Western Europe you know, or in Russia they can at different moments be thought of separately, they're very difficult to think of separately in Eastern Europe. In Poland, for instance, underwent multiple occupations, September 1st, 1939, the Nazis invade from the west. September 17th, the Red Army comes from the east. Now, at a certain point in June 1941, then, when Hitler declares war on the Soviet Union, then these lands that had been eastern Poland that were occupied by the Soviet Army are then going to be occupied by the Germans. And at a certain point, the war is going to turn, and those lands are going to come back under Soviet occupation. Mm -hmm. So you have these multiple occupations, and therefore you have these populations that are passed back and forth between Nazism and Stalinism. And that's, that's one of the ways in which those experiences wrap themselves around one another and become very difficult to disentangle. You um, spent some time in Eastern Europe doing research there um, in the 1990s, right after the fall of communism. What was that like for you? It was an incredibly exciting time to be there um, for a whole variety of reasons. You know, when communism fell, there was suddenly a sense of the fact that the old rules no longer obtained, but what the new rules were, nobody yet knew. Mm -hmm. So there was a kind of, there was both a kind of ecstatic freedom and a kind of wildness. I mm -hmm. mean, you had, for instance, robber baron capitalism. I mm -hmm. mean, you had capitalism understood, you had free market understood very literally as a kind of free-for-all with no rules and no accountability. It was also a kind of moment of an opening of a Pandora's box, you know, in which everything that had been kind of stuffed inside was coming out. Um, and as a historian, the thing that was incredibly seductive is that the archives were opening. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I can kind of use a Freudian metaphor, um, the communist archives in these countries played a similar role to the role that Freud would assign to the unconscious. Mm -hmm. So for Freud, the unconscious is kind of like a dark psychic closet, mm -hmm. and everything that is too disturbing for the conscious mind gets thrown into that dark closet. But it doesn't go away. 
and it kind of seeps out, you know, problematically here or there, and it's constantly causing neuroses, you know, and causing various kinds of, you know, emotional difficulties. And when things do start to come out, then that's also very painful. You know, the communist archives were like the Freudian unconscious. It was that dark psychic closet in which everything too disturbing for the conscious mind was thrown and it was locked. And then suddenly you start to open them. You know, and from one point of view, you know, that's wonderful because now we're going to talk about truth and now we're going to have freedom and now we're going to have free speech and now everybody is going to have this whole kind of very open Western style discourse. But on the other hand, if we go back to Freud, Freud had no illusions mm -hmm. about the fact that you start coaxing the contents of that dark psychic closet into consciousness. He had no illusions that that was going to be a nice, painless process. You know, on the contrary, he understood that it was going to be a deeply painful and traumatic process. Mm -hmm. And that was very much true about the archives as well. So there was this. In what way, though? Well, everything that shouldn't have been talked about went into those archives to some extent. For instance, everybody knew in some way that s thousands of Polish military officers had been murdered by the Soviets under Stalin um, near a forest called Katyn. But officially it was blamed on the Nazis. You know, and everybody knew but nobody talked about it. You know, and then in the 1990s those documents started to come out and at a certain point Yeltsin in fact turned them over to the Poles. Um, one of the things that came out, for instance, is there was a woman, a remarkable woman named Milada Harakova, who was a, a feminist or a women's activist and a Democrat who had survived being imprisoned and tortured by the Nazis, who was then put on show trial in 1949, 1950 by the Stalinist in, in Prague. And she was accused in the classical language of the Stalinist purges of these fantastical crimes that she was you know, conspiring with you know, Western fascist capitalist powers to start a third world war and to overthrow the glorious socialist order and to restore power to the factory owners who were going to brutally exploit the workers and all of these other things. Um, and so she was put on the show trial along with various other defendants and she was sentenced to death by hanging and she, she was hanged. And in the days before her execution, she wrote letters. She wrote letters to her daughter, to her father, to her husband, to her, um, to her sister, to her mother-in-law. And those letters were never delivered to the people for whom they were intended. But they weren't thrown away either, which is a very interesting question. It I mean, there's is. a certain kind of perversity. Somebody had to look at those and not pass them on to their intended recipients, but someone could have easily burned them, and they don't burn them. They put them in the archives. Mm -hmm. And then what happens in the 1990s is they come out of the archives. Um, and there's this incredible feeling of, of voyeurism. You know, mm -hmm. to be, I mean, to be a historian working right. in the post-communist archives is to be a voyeur, to be reading pages in the lives of others. Um, and, and you got to read those women's letters, I take yes, it. Yes, I got to read those women's letters, and which in fact were published in mm -hmm. Prague, you know, in, in the 1990s when they were dug out of the archives. So you're always reading things that were not meant to you, and you're always reading things that were very painful, mm. you know, in various ways. People betrayed people, you know, to whom they were very close. People saved people who, people forgave people who betrayed them and, you know, people betrayed people who saved them. And, and all of those stories in various ways kind of start to come out, you know, and maybe the people who were initially the protagonists in the stories are no longer alive, but often the children and the grandchildren mm -hmm. or other people who were associated were alive. 
Let's talk about your book, The Taste of Ashes, and, and, in, and you commenting about painful stories. I, I did read mm -hmm. um, much of the book, and, uh, and many of the stories are very painful. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us about the book, and how did you come to write it? Well, the idea behind the book, and in fact, I started it in the 1990s, and I kept putting it off. Mm -hmm. um, the idea behind the book was in some ways that I was gathering material for various scholarly projects, and I felt that in, in, in gathering that material, I was talking to lots of people, mm -hmm. sometimes formally as interviews, sometimes very informally. And I started to feel that there was a lot of the very most, somehow most revealing material that couldn't go into a scholarly book, mm -hmm. and that someday I would have to do something with that material because in some ways that was the, that was the human story. Sure. And that as I was working in the archives about time periods that were, had long passed, there was also another story that was unfolding around me, and that story that was unfolding around me was a story in some ways about the darker side of the fall of communism. Mm -hmm. You know, that there was this impression that I think many Americans had as if communism was a kind of wicked witch and then the wicked witch is dead and everybody lives happily ever after and the imprisoned playwright you know, gets to go live in the castle and it's very much a fairy tale story. And that story is true, in many ways that story is true. But there, that's not the whole story. Right. I mean there's also this other side to the story or these many other sides to the story, um, many of which are much darker, which are people confronting choices they made in one world and suddenly they are forced to account for those choices in a world in which all the rules have radically changed. Mm -hmm. And one thing that people said to me time and time again, people who were passive, people who were in the opposition, people who were in prison, people who were on the side of the regime, yeah, um, we never thought we would see it end in our lifetime. Nobody thought they would see it end in their lifetime. And people made choices with the expectation that they would not see it end in their lifetime. And then suddenly one day, it was over. Mm -hmm. You know, and suddenly all the ideas about what was right and what was wrong and what was good and what was bad were very much colored by the retrospective fact that you knew it was all going to end and they had to account for those choices. Right. So let's talk about some of the particular stories in your book in terms of, you know, what you've just said. Well, one of the, I mean, one of the stories that I wanted to tell that, mm -hmm. you know, I found very moving was about... Uh, a woman who had been active as, as a very young woman in, in the opposition, you know, who first got involved in Catholic underground publishing, coming from a very tiny village, basically, you know, and meeting a priest, you know, and finding that relationship very compelling. And I mean, the, the Catholic Church, you know, part of the Catholic Church had somehow compromised with the regime, and then part of the Catholic Church was operating underground to a certain extent, mm -hmm. because communism, of course, was atheist, um, and producing Samizdat literature, which was underground self-published literature. You know, so at first she got involved as a teenager in underground literature, and then she eventually signed Charter 77, which was a human rights, it was a human rights petition, essentially, in Czechoslovakia that was officially inaugurated on January 1st, 1977, which was inspired by the Helsinki Accords, mm -hmm. which basically simply asked that the Czechoslovak government honor its signature to the Helsinki Accords and respect basic human rights. Mm -hmm. It was not an anti-communist document. It didn't call for a change of regime. It didn't call for restoral of the free market. It didn't call for a multi-party system. It only, you know, it only called on the Czechoslovak government to respect the Helsinki Accords and respect human rights. And it be became, though, although it was just a petition, 
it became the focus, you know, of kind of a nexus point for whole dissident movement. So she eventually signed Charter 77, um, and, and, and she, was, she was young and brave and fearless in many ways and got herself arrested and thrown in prison various times um, with all the brutal things that happen when you get yourself thrown into prison. And her parents, who had two other children at that time, were obviously very upset about her activity, you know, and they wanted her to stop because she was putting not only herself in danger, she was putting them in danger, and she was putting her two brothers in danger, mm -hmm. you know, and they were desperate, you know, they felt like she was endangering the whole family, and unless she stopped, they couldn't protect their own, own two children. And so they turned their daughter into the secret police, knowing what happens to people who get turned into the secret police. Now, Obviously, after 1989, they feel very badly about yes. this, you know, <laughs> understandably. Yes. You know, and understandably, the daughter is reluctant to have much contact, you know, with, much them contact more, with them. And she, at a certain point, in a very complicated way, ends up going to the States where I met her. Um, and I, at a certain point, was then, then living in a small Bohemian town not so far from the German border in Western Bohemia. And the father came to look for me. He had heard from the grandmother, whom the daughter was still in touch with, that somebody who had seen the daughter was there. Mm -hmm. And so this man comes in, in despair, really desperate, and kind of accost me as I'm on my way into this classroom I'm teaching at, at a secondary school there. And he's speaking very quickly, and he's speaking in a kind of colloquial dialect, and I don't understand what he's saying, and, you know, and my check isn't very good at that point. And finally, I realize who this is. Okay. You know, finally, slowly, I realize who this is, and he says, you know, I have to talk to you, I have to talk to you. Will you come back talk to, and talk to me and my wife to this village? And so I, I go with him, and these people are, this couple is, they're, they're extremely nice, you know, and they're despairing, and they want me to know how much they hate the communists. They want me to know how much they've always hated the communists. They want me to understand that they just didn't, never thought it would be possible that, that it would actually come to an end. And they wanted me to see all the newspaper clippings they had of their daughter as the hero of the revolution and how proud they were. And it was incredibly moving, and mm -hmm. I felt very empathetic toward them. And yet, of course, it wasn't for me to forgive them. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, you know, it must take um, an overwhelming amount of I don't even know what to turn your daughter in knowing what could possibly happen to her. I mean, um, and I guess my question is, why did they do that? I mean, were they in fear of themselves getting yes. in trouble? Yes. People okay. make decisions out of fear. Right. People make people make decisions out of self-interest, but they also make decisions out of fear. And that line between fear and self-interest is often very blurry. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happened in the 1990s. Uh, especially in Czechoslovakia, and it happens with, with a significant delay and uh, with more controversy and to a lesser extent, to some extent, in Poland, is so-called lustration, mm -hmm. which means they start to open the secret police archives and they start to, they start to publish lists, you know, with much dissent about whether or not that's a good thing to do, of people who collaborated with the secret police. Now, there were people who were working for the secret police, as in that was their main job, right. you know, they were agents. But there were also all the ordinary people who were right. coerced, who sure. were blackmailed, who were threatened, who were given incentives sure. to inform on 
their neighbors, on their colleagues, on their friends, on their children, on their lovers, mm -hmm. on their husbands or their wives. And the whole system in some way was based on that. Mm -hmm. You know, that everyone sure. could always inform on anyone else at any moment. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole system in that, in some sense, Tough was based times. on kind of atomizing <laughs> trust. Right, so what do you, I mean, you publish sure. these lists and people realize that they have been betrayed by people who were very close, close to, to them. them. And so you have a whole social fabric that's being undermined. And mm -hmm. then there are people who, demand accounting, you know, and want those people to be published, punished, you know, That's and then sure. there are people who feel like, well, they were pressured. Mm -hmm. Now the line between, you know, what happens if somebody's offered a lot of money, what happens if somebody's life is threatened, and what about that whole continuum of things in between right. in which people are threatened, blackmailed, given incentives of varying kinds with varying degrees of clarity. Um, I mean, one of the things I found is that you know, it's very hard to come out of these situations in which people are are put in positions in which whatever you do, you're morally implicated. I think from the position of the parents of, of this young woman, they could not protect their other two children, you know, unless they turned their daughter sure. into the secret police. Difficult and so you choice. have these, these competing moral imperatives. You know, you have, you can sign Charter 77, and then the regime might not punish you, or might only partially punish you, but will punish your children. You know, so there are not easy moral questions to answer. I mean, and I think one of the things I tried to say in this book without taking a kind of radically morally relativist position is that there's a, there's a very beautiful line of Polish poetry by Wisława Szymborska who says that we know ourselves only insofar as we have been tested. Mm -hmm. And I have tried all the time to keep that in mind. I've tried every time. It's very easy to look at these cases and say, well, I would have been a hero. Sure. I would have been brave. You know, I, I never would have agreed to collaborate. I never would have. But do we really know until we're put in that situation? Probably not. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the title of your book, The Taste mm -hmm. of Ashes. How did you uh, come upon it? Um. I know there's a story. Um, about a woman actually tasting ashes in it. So uh, how does that play into it? There is. There's, the book opens with a story mm -hmm. about a woman actually tasting ashes. Um, the ashes is a very big Polish motif um, really? in a variety of ways, but there are some famous literary references, um, the most famous of which is a, a novel and then later a film called Ashes and Diamonds, um, which was written immediately after, more or less immediately after the war and has to deal with essentially a kind of state of civil war in Poland between communist and anti-communist in that those difficult transition years between the end of the Second World War and, and the onset of Stalinism proper. Um, there's also a poem by this poet Antony Słonimski written during the war. There uh, are all these images of Warsaw after the Second World War having been reduced to ashes. And then there's a story that I opened the book with, which is about a Czech physicist um, who had emigrated, you know, and spent some 20 years and made an extremely good career for himself at, at Stanford, you know, as a very talented physicist, and had an American wife and a family, and always wanted to go back to Prague. What he, I mean, he, he was enormously successful, you know, a, a, on foreign soil, mm -hmm. but always wanted to go home. He always wanted to go back to Prague. And so finally, in the 1990s, um, you know, he and his American wife, who is a painter, they, you know, they leave their beautiful home, you know, in, in Menlo Park in California, and they move to Prague. And in Prague, what he wants to do is see his old friends again and be part of this old life. 
but his old friends are not really so eager to embrace him. I and mean, why is that? Uh, there was, uh, I mean, there are always particular reasons of which I can't claim to know all of, but there was a, a general tension in the 1990s, and I think that's abated to a large extent, between people who stayed and people who left. There was a sense that the people who emigrated often had a disproportionate voice in speaking for the people who were stuck behind the Iron Curtain. They were the ones who were in the West. They were the ones who had access to Western media. They were the ones who were speaking in foreign languages. They were the ones who were explaining their own countries to the wider world. And yet they, they didn't stay and suffer. You know, and they didn't have the experiences that everyone else was having. And then it was very easy to decide to come back when everything was nice, sure. not having suffered. Mm -hmm. um, and then to, f then to feel like, oh, I've missed you so much, but in the meantime, we've stayed here and suffered under communism, and you've had this much nicer life in California, so why should we feel so sympathetic to you? I see. Um, and I think that, that that tension was very widespread on a variety of levels. And it, it's not easy to come back into a situation where people have been through such radically different experiences that you're really coming into a different moment. Um, in any case, I mean, the short version of the story is, is that, that the physicist, having been in Prague for less than half a year, commits suicide. Mm. Um, and the story the book opens with is the story of his memorial service that his American wife has organized in Prague. And there is a moment at which one of his French friends reaches into the urn and tastes his ashes. And in reading that story, I wasn't quite, I didn't quite understand why she did that. Mm. Can you explain that That I, I cannot <laughs> explain, yes. That I cannot, no, it was a is it a French thing or is it, you know, I, I didn't. It, um, it was a striking gesture that stuck in my mind, but I, I'm unable yeah. to explain it. Okay. Um, how about this? As Americans, what did you feel? Um, do we have a misconception about Eastern Europe? What is it that we're not understanding, do you think? Well, I think that, that there time? were many things. I mean, and I say this as an American who felt and kind of continues to feel that the longer I'm there, the more I understand. I mm -hmm. mean, I've now been going back for the better part of 20 years. Um, you know, and each time I go back, in some ways, I, I find another layer of something I hadn't understood before. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the first things I understood that going over there as an undergraduate student, I was very interested in the Czechoslovak dissident movement. I was very interested in this very fairy tale story about the imprisoned playwright who gets to go live in the castle. Mm -hmm. um, and I had this vision of the Czechoslovak dissidents kind of as if they were <coughs> Abby Hoffman, you know, right. as if they were Democrats or maybe populist or maybe left-wing populist and they were going to restore power to the people. And one of the things I found very quickly when I got there is that the dissidents were, not only were they very ghettoized, were they a tiny group of intellectuals with a very tenuous connection to the people in general, but they themselves were enormously cynical about the people. You know, they looked around and saw that most people were passive and that in some ways most people were satisfied. That they were a ghettoized group of people who were willing to make great sacrifices and that that was not necessarily supported by the society of which they were part. And in Václav Havel's very famous essay, which is written in such a kind of beautiful prose that in fact the harshness of the message might can be obscured by the aesthetics of the prose, um, the power of the powerless, he posits this character of the greengrocer. His greengrocer is the average Czechoslovak citizen. Mm -hmm. And every morning the greengrocer goes to his shop 
and puts in the window together with you know, the onions and the carrots and the tomatoes, the sign saying, workers of the world unite. Now Havel asked, does he believe that sign? Well, of course he doesn't. Nobody does anymore. It's been a long time since anybody actually believed. There was a moment at which lots of people did, but that moment's been passed, <laughs> especially since 1968. It's definitely been passed. Um, but the greengrocer puts the sign in his window anyway. Well, why does he do it? Well, he does it to avoid problems. I mean, he does it because if he weren't to put the sign in the regime, people would question that. Somebody might report him. The police would come. They would interrogate him. You know, if he really refused to put it in his sign in the window, he could be arrested. Then he could be imprisoned. His children could be repressed. They could be persecuted. Um, all of these consequences would befall the greengrocer if he refused to hang his sign. And then Havel says, well, the greengrocer, who is seemingly powerless, what can he do? All he can do is kind of go into his, sign, his, his store. What difference does it make if he hangs a sign or not hangs a sign? But the fact that so many consequences would befall him if he were not to hang the sign suggests that he's not so powerless after all. It suggests that, in fact, that hanging of the sign is very important to the regime. You know, and moreover, we might imagine that if one day all the greengrocers were to take down their signs, that would be the beginning of the revolution. And because the greengrocer is not so powerless, because in his own way he is powerful, he is also responsible, and he is therefore guilty, because it's the greengrocers who allow the game to go on in the first place. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Taste of Ashes is uh, coming out this year or next year? Next year. Next year. Next okay, year. so we'll have to look for mm -hmm. that. Um, and then what's your next project? Mm -hmm. What are you going to be working on? My next project is actually in some ways inspired by this very early undergraduate research I did about the Czechoslovak dissidents because mm -hmm. one of the things I discovered as I discovered that they were not, not only were they neither populists nor Democrats um, and not as I had imagined them to be, but they also weren't coming from a set of references like Locke and Mills and, you know, people we might think were mm -hmm. references for liberal Democrats, that in fact they were constructing a philosophy of dissent, of opposition to a communist regime that was based much less on what we might consider democratic theorist or social contract theorist than it was on a certain kind of continental philosophy, in particular Heidegger, Levinas, and Husserl. And at a certain moment, I realized that the really interesting question, you know, would be to kind of go back from people like Václav Havel to Czech philosophers like Jan Patočka to people like Patočka's teachers who were um, Husserl and Heidegger and really follow the influence of phenomenology and existentialism as it's fairly kind of hardcore, you know, continental philosophy coming mostly from German lands and follow that into Eastern Europe and see what happens to it throughout the 20th century. Okay. So that's my next project. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. And thank you very much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. Oh, thank you very much for having me. For more information about Professor Shore and her work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.